This episode is brought to you by Arvin, the home of creative writing. Keep writing this autumn with Arvin at Home's extensive digital programme of readings, classes and week-long writing courses. Head to arvin.org to find out more. So, heads up, or perhaps more appropriately, bottoms up. Today's episode immediately jumps into discussing having a long, flexible tube inserted into one's anus, which might sound very much par for the course on this show. I'm not exactly renowned for my commitment to highbrow ruminations on fine art, but it is actually all in service of a wider discussion on both macro and micro compositional principles within prose fiction, honestly. Um, Make of that what you will. This serves both as a teaser and a content warning, but just, yeah. Today we're talking colons, and I don't mean punctuation. Hello and welcome to Death of a Thousand Cuts, making you an awesome writer one cut at a time. My name's Tim Clare and this is a show about writing for writers, for readers and for anyone with a morbid fascination with how the story sausage is made. To that end, we have three strings to our writing blow. Hello and welcome to Death of a Thousand Cuts, making you an awesome writer one cut at a time. My name's Tim Clare and this is a show about writing for writers for... Hello and welcome to Death of a Thousand Cuts, making you an awesome writer one cut at a time. My name's Tim Clare and this is a show about writing for writers, for readers and for anyone with a morbid fascination with how the story sausage is made. To that end we have three strings to our writing bow. One to help you write more, two to help you write better and three to help you be a little bit happier while you do those things. So, today I want to talk about something that if you've dove, dived, uh, Divan, uh, Dovan, deep into the podcast archives. Uh, if you are somewhat conversant with your Tim Clare creative writing pedagogy lore, you will recognise as being one of my favourite and most prized hobby horses and yet one of my most feared and despised bugbears. To wit, the order what you say stuff in. Now, when we're talking about novels or short stories, we can consider this both at the level of, of plot, what events happen when, what you open your story with and what you close with, and at the level of the sentence, word by word, when you're conveying something to the reader. Uh, I mean, does it make a difference in what order you put the words in a sentence uh, at one level, obviously, yes, in the sense that English has a fairly restricted number of legal moves when it comes to syntax. Clearly, Jane walked into the sleepy pub is more intelligible than pub into Jane sleepy walked there. But assuming you can get the general gist across, does it matter where individual words come on the sushi conveyor belt of each sentence? Must we treat every line like some infinitely fussy tea ceremony in which the tiniest breach in etiquette spoils all? Or should we give ourselves a break, trust the reader to get the gist and focus on delivering a great story? In 1993, psychologist Daniel Kahneman and his colleagues published a paper called when more pain is preferred to less, adding a better end. In it, participants underwent two trials. In the first, they put their hand in painfully cold water, 14 degrees Celsius, for one minute. I know 14 degrees Celsius doesn't actually sound that cold if the air temperature is 14 degrees and you go outside, you might need to wear a jumper, but you'll probably be fine. Trust me, when you're in actual water, it it wicks uh, heat away from your body much quicker and 14 degrees Celsius water is actually surprisingly 
painful. Of course, I don't want to admit that to you. I'd like to say, oh, it's not, it wouldn't bother me, but it does very quickly, actually. So, so in you know, in the first trial, they put their hand in this 14 degrees Celsius water for one minute. In the second trial, they put their hand in 14 degree water for a minute. Then the water temperature was gradually heated for 30 seconds up to 15 degrees. Still uncomfortably cold, but less so. Later, those same participants were given the choice of which of the two trials they wanted to repeat. A significant majority chose the second trial, despite the fact that it involved enduring more pain for longer. So that's the trial where they had their hand in 14 degree water for 60 seconds, and then it was very gradually heated up by a degree for 30 seconds, right? Now, Kahneman, who later won the Nobel Prize for his work on decision-making in economics, explained this via something he called the peak-end rule. What he suggested is that when we come to evaluate a past experience, we don't remember it perfectly. Instead, we use a kind of mental shortcut called a heuristic to make the question easier. In this case, instead of evaluating every aspect of the uh, two trials, the two experiences, you know, duration, intensity of pain at every point, and then calculating total pain, he proposed that the participants were using uh, two markers as a kind of easier way of figuring it out. They asked themselves what the experience felt like at its peak, that is when the pain was at its worst, and how it felt at the end. Because the second trial, despite being longer, ended with uh, relatively less pain, people remembered it as being less painful overall. Kahneman concluded, quote, It is part of the human condition that people prefer to repeat the experiences that have left them with the most favourable memories, not necessarily the experiences that actually gave the most pleasure and the least pain. End quote. In a paper published three years later in the journal Pain, co-authored with uh, Donald uh, Redelmeyer, Kahneman looked at patients who underwent colonoscopies, so that's having a camera on a tube shoved up your bum, and found that their memories of how painful a procedure was tended to be based on how painful it was at its most painful moment. 38% reported a pain score of 10, the maximum, at least once during the extended procedure, and how painful the last three minutes were. Duration of the procedure didn't seem to play much of a role. And so they followed this up in 2002 with a brilliant tightly titled paper that sounds like the world's worst medical memoir, Memories of Colonoscopy. They looked at nearly 700 patients undergoing colonoscopies and randomly split them into one of two groups. The first group had the uh, colonoscopy procedure as normal, so you get this um, flexible tube with a camera and a light on it, shoved up your bum. It's very uncomfortable, uh, partially because your kind of um, bum hole gets inflated with uh, kind of like air as a, a bit. It kind of gets puffed out by this thing being pushed up because it kind of rams air up your, your colon. Um, and sometimes there's difficult turns for it to navigate. It used to be much more um, painful when uh, lighting technology wasn't all it is today we've kind of got led lights and lights that can be quite bright and fairly cool uh, in the original surgeries there was always a kind of delicate balance between switching the light on brighter and actually sort of burning the inside of someone's colon anyway um the first group had this procedure as normal and you know it can last anything between sort of 30 uh, minutes to an hour but the second group at the end they had exactly the same thing except at the end of the procedure quote 
the tip of the colonoscope was allowed to rest in the rectum for up to three minutes prior to removal, end quote. Which is still, by the way, uncomfortable having a centimetre wide camera um, shoved up your bum, but just not at the gurney clutching levels of pain involved in having a flexible camera root around in your cecum like a, a lubed ferret trapped in a condom. As the model predicted, participants in this second group, despite having three minutes of discomfort added to their procedure, rated the entire experience as less unpleasant than the first group. That final little period of downtime where the colonoscope just rested its nose in their bumhole like a sleeping vole coloured their assessment of the whole procedure. They remembered it as less aversive and they were slightly more likely to return for another colonoscopy in future. Now, now at this point you may be tremulously raising a digit into the air, ready to ask the question on everyone's bum lips. Uh, sir, how is this relevant to writing a novel? And, and yes, it's true, uh, one I would be fired from um, any uh, primary school class to whom I'd been brought into teaching creative writing at this point. But also, look, there are significant differences between inserting a greased camera up someone's bottom and telling them a story for money. But how they recall the two experiences, specifically the heuristic they use to assess how much they enjoyed or disliked them, might not be so dissimilar. When we read a novel or watch a movie or TV show, our memory of how much we liked it is, if not entirely dictated by, disproportionately weighted by our recollection of the peak moment, you know, the best scene, the moment when we were most engaged and how we felt right at the end in those closing minutes. So if you're watching a movie and say, you know, minutes 32 to 35 are a bit, a bit boring, maybe a bit implausible or stilted or whatever, that misstep is going to have far less impact on your overall assessment of how good the film was than if, say, the final three minutes feel dumb or contrived or tedious. Same with a novel. A bit of waffle midway through might conceivably be overlooked or forgotten by a reader who's otherwise having a fantastic time. But their memory of the book is going to be much more impacted if the same duration of waffle or piffle or similar appears at the end and the story just sort of peters out. A genre that tends to be super, super sensitive to this is the thriller, and maybe in a different way, but to the same extent, I think horror. Um, horror was definitely a genre that I read tons of in, in my teens. It was really what got me back into seriously reading. I mean, these are both genres where classically, in the most successful and memorable instances, the tension keeps going right until the last page, like literally you know, the moment the protagonist is safe or the villain is dead or the peril is averted, you'll just have a, a, a few more breathless sentences than the story's over. John Buchan's The 39 Steps is a good, if incredibly racist, example of this. William Golding's The Lord of the Flies is another um, that actually probably does score highly on both counts. The reason I make a distinction between thrillers and horror is because uh, in horror prototypically at least you might you might get a resolution you know it might be oh it's over and there might be a little bit of downtime and then a kind of jump scare or sudden resurgence of the enemy you thought was dead Stephen King of course has used all types of endings in his um, as he describes them elephantine novels from very rapid finishes to long uh, meandering postscripts and epilogues and actually to be clear 
letting the uh, tension out of the story, letting the air out of the balloon at the end isn't wrong per se. Like, like fiction can be not tense and still enjoyable, good, satisfying, engaging, emotionally and thematically rich, etc. It's just if you want people to come away from your novel thinking, holy shit, that was crazy scary or intense or adrenaline-filled or whatever, the closer you can cut that ending to the, the climactic moment, you know, the greater the reader's impression of excitement and intensity is likely to be. On the other hand, if you want them to feel all oh, that was comforting and satisfyingly resolved, you can have a long epilogue. I personally consider myself a fan of the long epilogue, despite, I imagine, almost every editor the world over going, no, don't do it, don't hang around explaining every aspect of the resolution while the lights are coming on and the characters are stacking chairs, looking awkward. And, and look, those editors, and, and I dare say a lot of agents as well, are probably right in most cases. As, as a general rule, that probably makes most novels it's applied to better but we are also allowed to love niche and perhaps even dare i say it objectively bad things that's our privilege as human beings and as readers and and, and as creators right we are allowed to write our stories the way we want even if some or even a majority of readers would prefer we'd done it a different way if they want different stories they can frankly write them themselves it's up to us if we're going to put in the time to choose ultimately what our stories are about and what particular itches they scratch but it's good to know i personally think what effect we're creating to at least be making our quote unquote mistakes deliberately rather than naively but there is of course another aspect to this the um peak part of kahneman's peak end rule and, and I think that's worth giving some attention to as well because so often I hear and and this is if this sounds like me whinging I am whinging and I apologize for that while still doing it but you know I hear moderators on creative writing panels ask agents or editors or even sometimes authors what are some pitfalls that novice writers should avoid or what are the sort of mistakes you see a lot of I get asked this on the on the few occasions that I do live events, right? And it is a really weird backwards way to think about writing. I'm not trying to shame anyone who asked the question. It's uh, a common and on the face of it uh, intelligent question, but I think it's flawed. It's it's like trying to teach golf by asking a pro what's the best way to fuck up and miss the green. How can I how can I get it into a uh, into a bunker? Like uh, ma making all uh, all the things we shouldn't do. The focus of our work it is a recipe for neurosis and creative paralysis. And I say this as someone who who really struggles every day with worry and and sadness, both during my creative work and outside of it. I used it my creative writing instructor, um, not a creative, my driving instructor. I, I've had lots of wonderful creative writing instructors, but only for short periods of time. Uh, but my driving instructor, I remember, sort of advised me uh, when I, I was learning, uh, look at the gap, not the cars. Uh, because he said, when you look at, when you focus your attention on the car you're trying to avoid, um, you in, sort of instinctively start dry, drifting towards it whereas if you focus on the gap the car that you're driving will also focus on that gap and I, I think that there's something to that and I think the same is true with focusing on writing pitfalls and mistakes look I, I don't have 
all, all the answers. I I I I, I want to emphasize that in, in case not because I think anyone for a moment will think I do, but maybe people might think that I think I do. Um, you know, bear in mind I'm almost certainly less hardy than you, more temporarily sensitive, um, temperamentally sensitive. I'm probably not temporarily sensitive, but look, my suggestion and and I I, I, I think a, a, an implication of Kahneman's study, frankly, is is, is that actually readers don't care too much. They're actually quite forgiving of fuck-ups and slips and bum notes and record scratches and a hundred different imperfections. Think of your favourite novel or movie of all time. Just your absolute golden pinnacle of enjoyment. Just the thing that makes you go, oh, maybe the thing that made you want to write in the first place. Maybe this thing that just lifts your heart. I suspect without too much effort, you can put yourself in the position of a critic and find some flaws in it some aspects that you can say yeah that is a bit naff actually or yeah that 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 bit is a bit implausible or i can see if you don't like robot dinosaurs this scene probably feels a bit indulgent or whatever you know your reasons for liking or loving this particular story are not i suspect because you came away from it thinking wow that story really avoided a lot of common pitfalls or wow they really minimized errors in that movie no instead you love it because of the high points the peaks because of that one great scene that makes you go wow because of that climactic moment where everything turns and and pays off because of that set piece where the language just flows or the choreography is spectacular whatever you know just whatever in the story or novel or film or tv series that was a high point that you just were able to bask in, you know, that that that, that, is, that is just imprinted upon you, and there might be other bits where the dialogue is workmanlike or expositiony, or maybe the aliens all unaccountably speak English. Maybe it's not exactly written in deathless quotable prose. Maybe you know, the story is largely forgettable but none of that matters because the peak bits are so good you overlook and forgive uh, the flaws you may even embrace them as part of the joy of the experience because we get into art not for how immaculately it cleaves to the conventions of the genre nor for how adeptly the author avoids embarrassing themselves by contravening some accepted convention but rather for how it makes us feel at the moments when it's firing on all cylinders leaning into its tropes and doing what it does best freely and without shame readers of literary fiction forgive shit shapeless plotting all the time um they and by they i mean we i am not then a group over there of uh, other people i love a lot of literary fiction but you know we we, we gloss crappy plot as realism or modernist deconstruction if we notice it at all readers of science fiction and fantasy have to accept some edges of the worlds we read just you know don't make sense if you poke at them too hard and to do so to 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 to, to, to say well how does physics work if x is true or whatever is to an extent to completely miss the point even the hardest of magic systems have a threshold where they break down where you just have to go why don't the characters do x because i guess because if they did there would be no story this isn't to say that plot holes and poor world building can't exist by the way i'm not advocating for some 
position of infinite relativism, just to say that bad world building is a spectrum disorder rather than a binary condition. How do we apply this to our own writing? Well, a lot of authors I've chatted to on this very show instinctively think in terms of, of set pieces, you know, in terms of these big moments or scenes or even images that are going to act as tent poles for their story, that one of them pops into their mind or two or just scenes or something strange and they, and they build a story like almost like life support to allow that image or moment to exist. You know, they go, how could this be happening? And they create a story around it. But, you know, you so you could think of that. You, you might also think in terms of mood or tone or chunks of content, you know, to fall back on something in the genre world. Say, say you're writing fantasy and um, your main character has a background as a street performer. Say uh, your protagonist is an acrobat. So you might just literally set a timer for 10 minutes and write a list offering answers to the question, what are some cool things an acrobat might do? They might have to sneak into a castle at night and run along the battlements. We might see them have a fight in a forest of giant redwoods where they're swinging from branch to branch. There might be some kind of chase across a fleet of airships where they're having to um, leap over gaps that are thousands of feet in the air from one blimp to another. Uh, They might have to parkour through a, a ruined city infested with ghoul arachnid humanoids to find the readout, the redoubt of some misanthropic mage hermit maybe they have to compete in a crazy royal tournament grabbing ribbons off some gigantic custom-built scaffold while a crowd cheers boos and lays wages maybe they have some very improbable and athletic sex i don't know what you're doing there is is you're leaning into thinking about what are the coolest most memorable peak experiences you can pour into your book as if force feeding a goose And look, I've used a sort of fun, pulpy example here, but this doesn't necessarily require pandering to the reader's basest urges. If you're writing a mood-driven literary fiction novel that thrives on vignettes and a sense of place and characters encountering each other in these ambiguous small human moments, you can lean into that instead and, and, and think about what kinds of locations might suit your theme and tone, how you might best frame these little frozen moments, how you might bring out the ordinary via the specific. You know, writing a timed list for that kind of thing might seem a very brute force, almost mechanical way of getting towards something nuanced and layered, but don't knock it till you've tried it. It's just a means of organising your thoughts. And more than anything else, it's a way of getting away from the mindset of like, if you're going to write literary fiction it's best that that, i've read some litfic novels that clearly at some point the author had a bit of a panic that they weren't doing plot well enough like a thriller would and in the last fifth they tack on a climax that is just shit it's really bad it fails and, and, and you know what? Up until then, I was having a great time reading this novel that was just like a series of vignettes and moments and scenes and little sort of mini happenings and set pieces. And it didn't need that. But because, you know, I get the sense in these things, they're trying to minimise their work's shortcomings rather than maximise its strengths they end up do, doing something that just is sort of not 
very good at anything. You know, you just end up with this kind of averaged out shape rather than min-maxing for ultimate yesness. And that's what I think doing this kind of exercise can do. It can just help reorientate and bias your attention towards what you're going to do really, really, really well. Now, of course, this model works not just for the book or story as a whole, but for individual chapters, each of which can and perhaps ought to have a shape, an arc, a beginning, a middle and an end. The key high point in each chapter and the end of each chapter are probably going to be, you know, probably going to disproportionately inform the reader's assessment of its content. And not just, as we've discussed, whether they like the book or not. I know, you know, talking about pain at the beginning can sound like I'm just going, does the reader enjoy this or not? But, 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 but it's, you know, you can use this to manipulate their sense of tone. If you end a chapter on a goofy joke, even if the rest was like dead, po-faced serious, it's going to retrospectively inject a sense of um, levity into the whole enterprise. If the chapter was tense, but you end it on resolution, that sense of resolution and equilibrium is going to be the reader's dominant mood. Looking back, do you resolve the chord or do you leave it hanging? That's a decision that's up to you. And it, it, it really weights the whole thing um, in a way that's disproportionate to the amount of words you're using. Which, of course, brings us on to the sort of final macro level. What about the level of a sentence. We'll get into that in just a moment. Arvin's residential creative writing courses in Devon, Shropshire and Yorkshire will be back as soon as they're able to open. In the meantime, they've launched Arvin at Home, a digital programme of events with all the same acclaimed writing tutors, insights and inspirations. There are readings, masterclasses and craft talks with authors such as Neil Gaiman, Bernadine Avaristo, David Mitchell and Lem Sisse, as well as whole digital writing weeks for writers of poetry, scripts, fiction and non-fiction. You can also book a one-to-one -one tutorial with an Arvin tutor of your choosing for direct feedback on your work. Now, at the time of uh, broadcast of this episode, uh, the 26th of October, um, if you want to try Arvin out before you book a course, our sign-ups are currently open for a free five-day poetry challenge with Malika Booker. Get five days of writing exercises straight to your inbox, geared to help you create a brand new poem. Now, as you know, I've taught at Arvin. I've also been a student at Arvin um, and it has a very very special place in my heart now coming up at the time of broadcast I mean check this out like on uh, Friday the 30th of October at um, 7 uh, 15 p.m the live guest reading is is Neil Gaiman um, who's going to be reading from his work it's going to be over zoom and there's going to be uh, is it going to be a reading and an interactive Q&A uh, it, it's five quid, <laughs> which is which is pretty uh, pretty intense, right? That's like that's that's going to be awesome, I imagine. Uh, and yeah, that's this Friday. You can go and listen to what's going to feel like I imagine a very uh, intimate reading, and then you know perhaps ask a question. What a what a great opportunity! Um, beyond that. Uh, there are a bunch of courses happening in November, including uh, here's some that might be of particular interest to listeners at the moment. 
Um, there's the Arvin at Home Writing Week starting to write from November the 16th to the 20th. That's for people writing fiction, poetry, non-fiction and playwriting. So really for whether you're kind of like interested in one of those in particularly or maybe you are a um, jack of all trades or you're not just you're just not sure what kind of thing is going to suit you I think cross training is so so useful whatever discipline you work in but that's going to be taught by uh, Kate Clanchy and by uh, Luke Wright who's uh, you may have heard me talk to on the show before um, poet playwright and a dear friend of mine um, he's a fantastic and very very um, I think compassionate committed a tutor so that's uh, November 16th to 20th. Um, that same week, there's um, a, a pure fiction writing course from Spark to Flame with Emily Barr and Tom Vowler. Uh, so if you're particularly interested in working on your prose fiction, there's that uh, available as well. Um, later on, there's theatre, short story and TV comedy writing weeks. Um, so if you go on the... Um, I'll put a link in the show notes to today's episode... Um, to arvon.org that's the website arvon.org where you can check all of these out but um, Arvon are a fantastic they've been doing this for ages right what's really great about them is um, uh, they have been working at this well you can tell if I did my first Arvon course as a pupil when I was 18 um, they've been around for decades uh, perfecting how to put on impactful courses and during uh these uh i'm just trying to find any way to say not say unprecedented times or uncertain times but um, during these times of like great uh change they are bringing all that experience into providing hands down um the best expert peer run courses available on the internet so I unreservedly uh, recommend them I think they're fantastic and I've always had just a magical time at Arvin whether it's as a learner or as a tutor and I think as a tutor you're kind of always learning quite a lot um, anyway to find out more and to book in you can click the link in the show notes or head over to arvin.org so the peak end rule at the sentence level. Now, I've talked about this an awful lot when I've looked at listeners first pages. You might have heard some of those um, episodes and um, you might have heard me refer to the uh, primacy recency effect, uh, which is a similar thing. The idea that we tend to retain information primarily from the beginning and end of an utterance or presentation better than the stuff in the mushy middle. So let's, rather than talking about this um, vaguely, let's create an example so we're not just uh, talking in abstract generalities. Abstract generality being, of course, the arch nemesis of my favourite texture, crunchy specificity. So, <clears throat> holding a gun, Graham burst into the room and pointed it at her. Now, obviously, in a single sentence, you might not appreciate just how out of character this is for Graham. He's normally a very mild-mannered fellow, but nonetheless, a theoretically dramatic bit of action. Holding a gun, Graham burst into the room and pointed at her. What? That's, you know, this is definitely, for whoever she is, this is definitely a moment of high drama. So, the question is, why does it feel a bit woolly and flat? Holding a gun, Graham burst into the room and pointed it at her. Well, how does the sentence start and end? With the words holding and her. 
One holding is a verb in an adverbial clause, the other's a pronoun. Neither are exciting by any stretch of the imagination, neither feel like they're really the thematic or semantic meat of this sentence. At best, they're the chewy bits of connective tissue, the grammatical gristle regrettably necessary to hold an English sentence together, but far from the choicest cuts. Now, the first thing we might do is attempt to identify where the hot beating heart of this particular gun-tratant lies. Because look, actually there is, in my opinion, a bit where this sentence comes briefly to life before slumping back down onto the mortician slab, and that's in the centre, with the main clause. Graham burst into the room. We've got a named character, we've got a clear, short, active verb, burst, and we've got a, a location of sorts. The other top candidate for interesting part of the sentence is the noun gun. That is, of course, the reason why I use this example. Gun is kind of the, the bluntest unit of narrative interest I could come up with. Now, what you might be tempted to do, and if memory serves, I, I may be paraphrasing Stephen King on his book on writing here, but I, I guess if you're following this heuristic to the letter, you might conclude the best version of this sentence would therefore read, Graham burst into the room and at her pointed a gun. That certainly bookends things with Graham Gunn, our two most salient nuggets, followed swiftly by Burst. But to say it wrenches the syntax is to grossly underplay the level of wrenchery. Look, I love flicking the vickies at stylistic convention as much as the next hirsute middle-aged depressive, but in this instance the syntactic tale is very much wagging the semantic dog. So what to do? Why is you know Graham Burst into the room and at her pointed a gun? Not okay, you know, what are we going to put instead of it? Assuming, you know, we are committed to writing our story of the usually pass ag Graham fatally overreacting about a boiled egg meme on group chat. Well, look, you could tinker with the syntax to make it scan better. Graham burst into the room, spotted Emily and raised the gun. I've given her her full title here. Um, this feels marginally more natural than the previous version. It relies on the reader to make an inference. Graham sees Emily... He raises the gun. Presumably um, it's not some bizarre toast. We, you know, he, He's aiming the gun at her. Uh, I don't say that. I don't say at her pointed a gun. He, he, he's Emily, we're, we're presented with Graham, Emily, the raising of the gun. Sometimes we, we sacrifice precision for speed and, and trust the reader to, to bridge the gap. And this is another reason why word order can just... Make, create implications that the reader, if they're presented with them fast enough, will just make for themselves. But thinking about it, I'm not sure Graham is actually as dramatically important as the act of bursting. Much as I love the name Graham, the accent isn't on the Grahamness of this sentence so much as its bursty valence. So we might actually recast the sentence as bursting into the room, Graham saw her and raised the gun. Or even bursting in, Graham saw her and raised the gun. After all, in implies it's indoors. Um, you can't really burst in to a beach. So so bursting in implies it's indoors, and I'm not sure actually room drastically enhances our comp comprehension. I think bursting in probably implies the presence of a room. But now we've got a whole new problem, which you, you may have detected. Uh, to get round the grammatical awkwardness, I've had to invent this whole new nothingy intermediate clause. Bursting in, Graham saw her and raised the gun. Or 
in the previous one, Graham spotted Emily. It's it's really dull. I'm stopping the sentence to describe the act of looking filtered through his perspective. Instead of simply mentioning her presence, which implies that he can perceive her, right? Because if it's through... Anyway, look, look, so we might add an action just to make sure that's doing something. Bursting in, Graham rounded on Emily and raised the gun. I'm still not sure about raised. Um, It feels a bit like he's parenting the gun rather than wielding it menacingly. So how about bursting it? Bursting in, Graham rounded on her with the gun. Or if that adverbial clause lands a little clunkily for you, we could go back to the previous format. Graham burst in and rounded on her with the gun. Now, I'm not suggesting this is electrifying stuff, but it's my contention that bursting in, Graham rounded on her with the gun is a more successful sentence than holding a gun, Graham burst into the room and pointed it at her. Start and end with a bang. Don't have the end of your sentence feel like the equivalent of leaving the tip of the colonoscope in the reader's bum for three minutes. Your aim as an author is to maximise sensation. Ideally, at the sentence level, the peak and the end should be simultaneous. Marley was dead to begin with. Oof, says the reader. Dr Dickens, I, I really felt that. It is a truth universally acknowledged that a single man in possession of a good fortune must be in want of a wife. Yow! cries the reader. Dr Austin, could you not have shown a little less urgency before yanking the apparatus from my distended sphincter? You're performing a delicate exploratory procedure, not pulling up turnips. Oh, but we remember those doctors, don't we? Centuries pass and we still recall their tender ministrations. The sudden sharp twist. As a kind of footnote, or maybe a, a bum note to this whole topic, I, I once, as the result of a joke that went too far, ended up undergoing colonic irrigation, despite not believing it to be of any likely benefit whatsoever. Um, we did it in some woman's kitchen in Norwich, ostensibly a professional. She had a flip-down bench um, in the middle of the room, and this Myra shower unit that had uh, novelly, uh, both blow and suck modes. And, and so I lay on this bench and she shoved this four inch speculum up my uh, my jacksy and, and pumped my bum full of lukewarm water. Now, was it comfortable? No. But did I feel fantastic afterwards? Also, no, it was painful invasive. With, with the cable coming out my bum hole, I, I felt like a giant computer mouse on a mouse mat and I had to spend like 20 minutes lying in a stranger's kitchen uh, feeling like I had explosive diarrhoea. And all I had to show for it afterwards uh, was moderate rectal soreness. £60 it cost me. In all seriousness, um, I don't want to seem like I'm, 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 I'm making light of this too much um my genuine good wishes love and empathy go out to you if you have had or are about to go through an uncomfortable painful medical procedure for any reason as human beings we take so much ease for granted and i don't mean that in a scoldy way uh it's, it's just hard not to get habituated to you know having enough food to eat or being pain free or having clear vision or mobility or whatever this particular boon happens to be. I, I, I can talk to you because I've been gifted with a tongue that works and pain-free lungs. I can breathe with ease and I have a brain that allows me to put 
words together and eyes that let me read off a page. My late grandfather had a tracheotomy before I was born because he had throat cancer and if he hadn't had it there was a very good chance that he would have died and even having the the operation at the time was an extremely risky business that many people didn't survive and he did survive thank goodness but it meant that he couldn't speak above a croak he couldn't sing he couldn't swim because he would have drowned and he was very vulnerable to infection you know he ended up dying in hospital from a throat infection i never heard his um quote unquote real voice i guess i should say his previous voice although that croaky voice he spoke in was for me his real voice and you know, it wasn't a flawed voice. It wasn't lesser in any way. It has, for me, as I remember it now, associations of love and deep affection and comfort and all sorts of positive attributes. But I have no doubt, despite the fact that, you know, I and he, you know, I'm sure we're both very glad that he could speak at all. I have no doubt if he had woken up one morning to find his throat restored and he suddenly found himself able to whisper and laugh and sing and shout and express himself in all the ways he had lost, ways that meant he couldn't teach and lecture, which were things he really cared about. You know, that day to him would have felt so miraculous. It would have felt rapturous. And yet that's the day I have every day that I'm having now. And I don't even notice. I live many, many hundreds of thousands of people's, you know, versions of a miraculous day every day. All these different paradises layered on top of each other. The paradise of speech, of seeing, of hearing, of um, locomotion. Uh, and I struggle to recognise that and appreciate it. I'm not castigating myself nor trying to scold or shame you or me i don't think that gets anyone anyway you don't don't get sort of like your finger wagged at you and tutted at and go go, go yeah no actually no it does feel really amazing I, it doesn't work does it you just feel bad about yourself and maybe i'm overemphasizing this in an attempt to redeem myself after an episode full of bottom-based content maybe this is my three minutes of leaving in the tip of the colonoscope but honestly just to be real for a moment i've been struggling very hard with depression this year and this past few months in particular i am not joking for a second it's been really fucking rough And it's important to me when, as humans, we're so evolutionary biased towards noticing danger and threat and pain and predicting those things in the future to just nudge myself and others towards noticing, wow, look, the miracle of a hand. I can pick up a glass of water and and take take a sip from it. I'm not showing off. (laughs) It's just that's this is incredible. And I can look out the window from where I'm recording now and and, and see greens and oranges and yellows and moving clouds and birds. I can speak to you. I can tell you what I'm thinking. There are thoughts in my brain. And because of this miracle of a tongue, I can talk to you and I can tell you how I'm feeling. And if you were here and you could talk to me, I would be able to hear your thoughts back. We can do a kind of telepathy. None of these things 
you know, believe you me, I know none of these things magically erase mental illness. If you're feeling low or crappy, either, nor will they cure you of whatever troubles might be bringing you down right now. I don't mean to trivialise any of that by saying these things. And I know if you're feeling low, having someone kind of like emphasise all the things we should be grateful for can feel a bit like having them punch you in the head and telling you off for not feeling better. You're not like, oh, I, I, I know I can see all these things are available to me. I just don't want to feel happy because I, I'm being uh, I'm being truculently miserable to try and get attention. Like, I, I know trying to feel gratitude for anything at all can feel like tossing lip matches and oncoming tank squadron. But doesn't make it any less true. And, and maybe... You know, I'm I'm very much hoping that most people listening, including you, my sort of dear friend, you know, are not feeling. I hope you're not feeling like me in an actual pit of depression. If you're not feeling hopeless and helpless and grim, you know, I'm sure you're you've got your problems right. But if you're just um, in whatever place you're in, you know, I hope then these kind of practices, these kind of moments of going, oh yeah, my ability to get up and down stairs or my ability to speak or my ability to sit comfortably for more than five minutes without pain, whatever's true for you, I hope just remembering that can spark a moment of real happiness and gratitude in you, however slight. And I hope, given how tricky writing can be sometimes, that remembering or waking up to how uh, we already have so many of the conditions of happiness right here with us, you know, we can sit down and peel a satsuma and eat it. We'll read someone else's book, right, and be happy. I hope orienting ourselves towards those things that are much harder for any human being, no matter their mental state, to recognise and see and appreciate. Uh, making those nudges can help us right from a position of completeness. You know, realising we've nowhere to get to, no defect we're trying to cover over or fix i used to think for so long that i needed to be a novelist and write novels to be okay to be acceptable to be an all right human being a valuable or worthwhile human being and and you know that's quite clearly not true we can just be someone receiving the kind of bounty of the world you know and uh, and i think that is but then you can fear that being happy is going to be something that if you don't have that little spark that little that'll fear that you need to fill with finishing a novel, then you wouldn't write. And I don't think that's true. You are amazing, miraculous, alive. You're not currently having a colonoscopy, unless, of course, you are, in which case, hi, this episode must feel uncomfortably apt. Um, but I think... Don't be afraid of contentment and completeness uh, I think some of the greatest creativity can come in those moments please take care of yourself I mean that sincerely you are immensely valuable give yourself permission to play when you're right and as always I hope you have a wonderful week of writing